Hello, this is Ian Welke, author of End Times Richmond High and of Four Corners. You're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the HP Lovecast Presents Fragments. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genre. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the King in Yellow graphic novel, adapted and illustrated by I.N.J. Colbard and published by Selfmade Hero in 2015. Uh, he's an artist that is known for adapting classic stories for the sequential medium. Uh, Colbard's adaptations include H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadoth, Along with working with Self-Made Hero, Culbert has also worked with Dark Horse Comics, Vertigo, Judge Dread Magazine, and 2000 AD. If you haven't read the original source material, Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow, then you may want to pick up the newly released version from Horror Writers Association's Haunted Library of Horror Classics. Edited by Eric J. Gennard and Leslie S. Klinger, this series is curated to follow the definitive text of the original publication, that's 1895, and includes annotations and or endnotes, as well as a teacher's guide of discussion questions. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Before we jump into our discussion, though, Nick will give us a summary of Chambers, The King in Yellow. Alright, so The King in Yellow is an influential short story collection written by Robert W. Chambers and published way back in 1895. Four of the collection's short stories, uh, The Repair of Reputations, The Mask, In the Court of the Dragon, and The Yellow Sign, form a core King in Yellow mythos of sorts, and this has had a profound impact on weird fiction writing from H.P. Lovecraft to others. So ingrained is the King in Yellow in Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos that many authors merge the two together in their writings. So in 2015, Self-Made Hero published this graphic novel adaptation of these four short stories, executed by illustrator I.N.J. Colbard, who has adapted many of Lovecraft's works into graphic novels previously. So with that in mind, let's talk about this graphic novel adaptation of the King in Yellow. So Michelle... (laughs) Your initial thoughts first. Sure. Um, You know, I've actually read uh, two of Colbert's other adaptations. I've read The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, as well as At the Mountains of Madness. And while I feel like the illustrations are very clean, uncluttered by extraneous details, I feel like all of his adaptations require kind of a familiarity with the original source material. Um, which makes it kind of challenging because if you're not familiar with the stories, um, these will be a challenge to read. Um, I do think a positive note uh, that the covers of this one as well as the Dream Quest are awesome. 
Um, I feel like they have the wow factor, they're powerful, and they seem to be a magnet um, for the eyes. And I know we'll, we'll talk a bit more about both of those, um, but before we get into in-depth uh, discussion, uh, Nick, what were your initial thoughts as well? Yeah, so it's one of those you're, you're excited for, and when you finally get around and you're reading it, you're like, oh, you know, it's, it's not that it's bad, but it's also not that it's great. So since it's a comic book, you know, first things first is the art. And the art, from my perspective, leans toward that Tintin Herge style of being very clear. And I actually dig that. I actually like the, the Herge uh, clear lines uh, style. Um, however, this one, there's some times where it's a little bit flat and a little bit boring and not as kind of detailed or animated as Tintin would be. The, the, and maybe that's just because it's fitting kind of, it's trying to go a more subtle route rather than an action-adventure route. And that's okay. Uh, but however, the main issue I see with this adaptation is that it tries very, very, very hard to be a precise adaptation of the original stories. And in doing so, it misses the mark. It winds up not adding anything new. And because of that, I feel like it suffers a, a lack of imagination. Especially since, you know, with Chambers and Lovecraft, and that's one of the reasons we do this podcast, is we talk about all the derivative stories that, hey, I'm going to take that and run with it and add my own spin, my own imagination, and do something cool with it. That's what this is missing. It's missing that I'm going to do something cool with it. Um, and it really, really shows. Um, in fact, I'll just use as a segue that uh, the opening page of this graphic novel sets up, I think, everything that's wrong with this graphic novel. Um, it's, it's off to a very bad start when the very first page, it has, you know, one of the quotes of the story within the story of the King in Yellow, you know, along the shore, the clouds wave break, the twin suns sink beneath the lake, the shadows lengthen in Carcosa, and then so on. You know, we see those four passages everywhere because there's not much for us to go on, you know, about the King in Yellow itself. Chambers has always kind of kept that uh, way in the background, which allows, you know, folks that are interpreting or writing their own thing to, to go hog wild. And so that's the opening paragraph of this graphic novel. However, what's the image that goes with that? <laughs> uh, is it is it the twin suns over the lake and the, the crazy stars and the black suns? No, no. It's, <laughs> it's the top of the trees and the top of the Washington Square Arc and and the Washington Park in New York. I mean, if you're going to adapt the King in Yellow and your first words are actual passages from the King in Yellow, I think you, you should go out straight, you know, guns a-blazing, you know, put, put that imagery right up there. Make the text match the imagery because we don't have that in other mediums. We've kind of had to use our imagination. You know, it was served to a uh, cobalt on a silver platter here. Here's the text. Go forth. Draw that piece. And that's not how he opens the story. You, you could... I know Tanabe and Mountains of Madness, that's exactly how he opened his stories. And he had little mm -hmm. intermissions of, you know, space and, and kind of crazy... Uh, you know, aliens and scenes, and it really added this surreal isolationist quality. No, this story opens up with mismatched King and Yellow text to scenic park vibes. <laughs> and and that just, it sets the mood, I think, for um, the story of what it could have been, what Colbert 
should have done is is really reach out there for it, but instead he plays it safe and tries to do this word-for-word direct adaptation. Yeah, and not uh, that great either, because, you know, when you are doing a graphic novel and you're trying to do a faithful adaptation, you end up missing um, internal dialogues. Um, There's gaps in uh, events that happen because... It's difficult to adapt everything um, because you do need to take some liberties and some license to have the text flow because, I mean, it's not an original visual medium. So the illustrator does need to mediate the original text to a visual form for us. And I think it falls falls short of that and, and that mediation. Yeah, that that I think probably one of the most critical missing pieces here is that internal dialogue because the original chamber stuff is full of you know whoever's narrating that story, their thoughts, their feelings, their observations, and and of course as as the story progresses, you know everything becomes suspect. It becomes that unreliable narrator story, and the thing is, you could do that so easy in comics. I mean, every. That that that's that goes on for decades. I mean, think of like Sin City, the the the, the noir comic. You know, that has you just put the little square narration right in the top left of the panel. I walked down the street and I saw Nancy Callahan. Oh, sweet, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not hard than thought bubbles in comics. It's it's like the oldest thing, but um, Colbert doesn't do that. Instead, it's as if he took the source material and. Only the things in the source material that could be visibly seen, such as, I opened the door, I handed them this brooch, I took my dagger out, I talked to the repairer, a cat attacked him. It's all like the visible things that you could see is what's been adapted. All the internal, this is my thoughts, this is why, you know, oh, I want to oust him as the king, I I deserve to be on the throne, I'm in love with this girl, I've had this crazy dream. All that stuff is excised. And when you do that, one, it robs the unreliable narrator quality from this adaptation. And and depending on where you wanted to go, if you wanted to go in a new route, that could work. It doesn't work in this one, but it could work. But it, it loses a bit of its magic, it loses its, a bit of its imagination by trying to adapt those very precise, what is visual on the page. And as we know from reading... Lovecraft reading the original source material uh, that Chambers wrote, there is, it's really dense, text heavy, lots of paragraphs of just on and on, <laughs> just talking, but it's not even dialogue. So to translate these kind of texts into a graphic format is, is a challenge. I mean, obviously, the the illustrator is passionate about this material. He has adapted a lot of classic adaptations. Now, I haven't read, like, um, the Dorian Gray one, um, and he's got others that... A lot of he, Sherlock Holmes ones. Yeah, that I haven't um, actually read. So maybe maybe that would be a bit different, you know, to take another look um, and read one of the other titles that's not within the Lovecraft or Chambers, which requires a lot of 
visual visualization um you know maybe the, it would it would translate better it, it's just i think that's one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of Lovecraft, like, word-for-word -word adaptations out there and King and Yellow adaptations. We always see things like cameos or elements incorporate. You see things called Lovecraftian and not straight-up Lovecraft because they're really... <laughs> these stories, at a visual level, are not too... There's not much that happens. I mean, Call of Cthulhu, if you really think about it, it's just the guy sitting on the chair reading the notes of, you know, the professor that died. Now, within those notes, you could probably, you know narrate that or whatever and put it on a screen or something but for the most part it's a lot of internal thoughts and deciphering and deducing but on the other hand it opens up you know the different artists out there to do something unique with it and on this podcast and in our lives michelle and i we've we've read a lot of lovecraft comics there, you know, part of it's because it's, you know, this is all public domain stuff. Part of it's very popular. There's a huge cottage industry of Lovecraft stuff. Uh, we've covered many Lovecraft comics on this podcast. Uh, and a lot of them are Kickstarter comics, for instance. You can go on Kickstarter and type in Lovecraft. There are so many Lovecraft Kickstarter comics. And the quality of these comics scales toward the not good side. <laughs> you know, like... You know, kickstart issue number one and there'll never be an issue number two or terrible artists or whatever. But, you know, how do you stand out in a sea of Lovecraft comics? And when I say Lovecraft, I'm including Chambers in that because, as stated earlier, they're, they're basically mixed together. You know, you're going to have a Cthulhu next to a King in Yellow. It's just the way it is. Um, but well, how it's do you... And it's all part of that cosmic horror yeah. concept. But how do you stand out? You've got to... You can't stand out just by, I'm just going to adapt it. Or take the stance of, I'm going to do a truthful adaptation. Because, you know, in not just comics, but movies and video games or whatever, when you try to adapt something, there's always that faction of people that will say something like, well, it's not true to the sourcing. It's not adapted very well. And I always think that's kind of a cop-out argument because some things just, you can't translate it from one medium to another without becoming clever, doing sacrifices, doing something else. Um, well, I'm thinking as you're as you're speaking, uh, Nick, I was thinking about how well um, I think it's the video game Sinking Cities works uh -huh. um, because it's not. I mean, it's using um, Shadow Over Infamous yes. as as an impetus for this video game, but it takes it so much further, and it gives a freshness, and you get to meet new characters. But the foundation text is still there. It's still being focused to that per, no. so that you understand. Precisely. Th mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent example of, I think a video game adaptation of Shadow Ender Innsmouth would not work very well. It, it can, might work like as an old 1990s point-and-click adventure game, maybe. That's about it. But if you take that and you rejigger it into slightly a different setting that... When in that city, it's pretty much Innsmouth, even though it's not. I can't remember what the name of the city is, but now, now you've, you've created your own sandbox that people playing it will say, this is Lovecraft. It's not a one-to-one -one adaptation of Innsmouth, but it contains enough that I see where this is going, and I'm having fun with it. Mm -hmm. And and that's what's... Yes. That's, and that's the other thing. There's, there's a fun factor that needs to happen. Comics... 
inherently, I think, need to be fun. I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, you don't read Mouse to have a good time. <laughs> you read Mouse because it's an important, you know, autobiographical comic, but it's not, I would call, fun. But for the most part, comics are supposed to be fun and tell a story. And even within the Lovecraft industry, I, I think people are afraid to admit this because, oh, Lovecraft is so deep and cosmic horror and all this other stuff and all... At the end of the day, those pulp stories still have to be fun. And, well, and, and a good case in point is when we talked about vinegar teeth. And that's the exception to all this. That's where you need to go for is the vinegar teeth type stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, here you have, you know, again, you have the, the cosmic horror, you have the Cthulhu mythos, but you pair that with a buddy cop <laughs> story set in... Kind of a noir, 1940s, you know, uh, city uh, next to a dock. Um, you have all those kind of interest de- interesting details of that time period that you pull in. But you're also creating kind of a fresh approach to material that can be kind of difficult to grasp. Mm-hmm. And then it's also, along with that, I feel uh, for each reader, it's, it's an individual experience. Mm-hmm. And I just think, yeah, Vinegar Teeth, yeah, people go back and listen to our Vinegar Teeth episode. We had a hoot talking about that. Um, And you can tell when you read something good that brings you some joy and whatnot, it really comes through. And I just think in the realm of Lovecraft, the realm of Chambers, trying to do a faithful, and use that in air quotes, adaptation is just you're set to fail because this isn't designed for those mediums. The stories aren't written that way. You gotta have something fun. You gotta have something new. And I think, I think that's what Colbert was trying to do. He was mm-hmm. trying to be the the person like I'm going to do the most faithful adaptation of this ever. And I always think that's a noble thing to try to do, but I I don't think you could pull it off. I just uh, you have to. T- in order for him to pull it off, he had to either bring in some internal dialogue, do some more kind of fun stuff within the panels. Because there are some instances he does some clever stuff in panels, like switching like the beard color of Boris's character. You know, you could, if you're not going to communicate the unreliable narrator through internal dialogue, you can at least communicate it through the panels. Like when, um, uh, what's the main character's name? Ch- Chesting? Uh, I, I can never remember his name. Whatever, the main character in Repair of Reputations, you know, he has the crown, and to him it's this gold crown. Oh, to Hol- other characters. Holbert? Not Holbert. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's the main character in Repair of Reputations, but he puts the crown on. He thinks it's ornate and everything. Other characters see it as tin. You know what? You could draw that, and you could have some fun with it. One panel's the crown's looking like this. The next panel, in the background, the crown looks something different. And oh yeah, that would have been easy because exactly. when when somebody else is in the room, when it's when it's just the main character looking at himself in the mirror, of course it's going to be very ornate. He's it's going to be his interpretation. But that's a great point. That would have been a wonderful way to uh, give that that inconsistent narrator yes. view by by having the crown look something different but similar so that you you get the gist of what the illustrator and the story is doing casting that's the character but if i may say something about that real quick because again this is a literal adaptation Mm -hmm. if you haven't read the king in yellow in a while and you brought this up we'll dive into it even more here in a second uh 
he adapts the dialogue almost verbatim. So you don't find out character names until late into a story. I'm, I'm reading... Uh, yeah, I found that very frustrating. <laughs> I'm reading story number three of uh, The Mask. Uh, not The Mask, uh, The Yellow Sign, sorry. The Yellow Sign, you know, it's the art and his lady. And he's, he's trying to do paintings of everything. I'm like, okay, there's this critical scene with the lady. What's her name? I, I go back to the first page of that story. Turn. Turn, 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 turn. How am I 10 pages into the story and I don't know this character's name? Turn. Oh, her name's Tessie. Okay. That's not how that's just supposed to work. If if you're going to adapt a comic and introduce a character, you probably want to give their name like in a panel or two, not 10 pages in. Now, you don't have to do that to Superman. You know, everyone knows no, who we, Superman we know, is, but but, but, but you're right. You know, when you're adapting something, you've got to give your readers things to hold on to. And when you don't give, like, a name, and all we have is a little bit of a visual, um, and that could be unreliable, putting a name in there is helpful. And it's helpful when we're talking on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely write in the notes for this was a slog just because we had to dig through to refine people's names and make sure we're pairing them up to the correct faces. But going back to when we opened the podcast, you know, Michelle, what was your kind of grievances with this? That's the one thing we're talking about. This is not a standalone comic. No. If you're going to do an adaptation of something, that adaptation has to be standalone. Yeah. Um, we were talking about this beforehand. The best example I can think of is like the the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films. You can never have read, you know, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but you can watch those films. And yeah, there's some changes here and there. But at the end of the day, after you watch those three films, you've had a good time, and you've probably got 90% of what the original text was going for. You know who the characters are, what's going on in the story, all the major events, who who's doing what and when. Um... And you don't need to go back and have Tolkien, you know, do the back and forth. Oh, I see. Oh, oh that's who that... Oh, okay. This, you have to. The, the King in Yellow, the comic book adaptation, because it gets rid of all the internal monologues, because they don't introduce character names until pages in, you are really left with no resources. If this is your gateway to Chambers, you are screwed yeah and it, and it would be best to go read the original text first before diving into this because your enjoyment of the graphic novel will be so much improved by knowing the text ahead of time and, and it's always good to you know especially through intertextual means to have both texts at the ready but the fact of the matter is, is, you know, a lot of people's gateways to a text is through a, not the original text. You'll hear a cover of a song before you hear the original. You'll see the movie before reading the book. You'll read the comic before the video game, or so on and so forth. And, and, and the best of those are the ones that can stand on its own, capture the original story as best as possible, but still have kind of a nice little spin on it. Um, and I would say also to encourage the reader to want to go and read the original text. Not yes. because they're frustrated, but because they're so intrigued and they want to gain even more insight and understanding and engage with that original text uh, because they're, they're actually fascinated and interested in knowing more. I, you know what? That, that's, that's actually a really succinct way to put it. Readers of this are going to try to engage the original Chambers text 
Not not because, <laughs> like, oh, this is so good, but because of frustration. Now, compare that to... Uh, here's a caveat, folks. We haven't watched... Or at least I haven't seen Michelle. Michelle secretly watches all these shows without telling me, but <laughs> I, I have not seen True Detective. But I know there's some episode of True Detective out there that brings up the king in yellow and the yellow sign, and it's really important. And I know that because whenever we're at a con or talking to a friend, and somehow or another the king in yellow pops up, oh, True Detective? You know, that's people's gateway to the King in Yellow was through True Detective. And I, I can only hope that they, then they got, went and, you know, read the book or some other iteration or something. But whatever it was, that was enough in True Detective to make people, you know, click on it, become educated on it, and go, oh, yeah, and whatever. Not, oh, ugh, <laughs> you know. And True Detective of all places. As much as the comic falters... It does falter. Let's just be honest. It's it's a pretty comic, but the text is not that good. There's still some good stuff that does happen. Oh in yeah, it, though. I would um, say that you know, while it falters with the narrator mm -hmm. or the narration, the story adaptation itself, there's a lot to commend about the art style, and that's part of you know us reviewing this graphic novels looking at the art how it stands um as a graphic novel yeah even though the you know it's not quite adapting the scenes of carcosa which i still think is a mismark there's still a there's like three sequences toward the end of the book i think in stories three and four where they do show the king in yellow and you know some kind of bright lights and stuff like that and it's it's admirable um there definitely needs to be more of it but there's some of the kind of normal panels that look great this is kind of an older school comic where everything is grid like so there's no splash pages there's no uh circular frames or frames overrunning and that's okay I, I i'll dig both you know sometimes a a splash page in a superhero comic is okay what's going on here where is everyone who's doing what that the old tintin style is sometimes you know uh good and i think because this is supposed to be a 1920s, 30s comic, and that's when Tintin started. Can I just say, can we just have a Tintin crossover of Cthulhu <laughs> at this point? Um, yeah. But there, there are some beautiful frames. On on uh, story number two, uh, there's this passage of time frame where the character is just chilling on a chair by himself smoking. And on the opposite page is basically a grid of four. And it shows like this beautiful window in a building across from it. And each column shows it gets getting progressively darker and darker, the passage of time. And there's no, there's no words. There's no thoughts. You, you kinda... but, but, but it's clear that, you know, a passage of time is occurring. And in case you do have the graphic novel in your hand as you're listening, it's page 63, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I bet 62 compliments to 63. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, this is a wonderful sequence. It's one of those where if you're going to ditch the internal narration, but you executed the thoughts and feelings like this sequence, I get it. You know, I totally see get this because yeah. the character, you know, <clears throat> it, it's it's kind of when you're reading a book and you get that 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 pause or you're watching a film and it's like okay we've had all this action let's pull it back let's let's give some contemplation of the characters to kind of like think about all that's been occurring and and the heaviness 
of the dialogue before that and what's been, uh, you know, what has transpired prior to that pause. And it's, it's done really well in, in that story. In Repair Reputations on page 13, you've got the titular Repair Reputations. His face is covered in cat scratches. He's he's definitely not threatening. He, the, the comic makes him less threatening than he is in the text, but that's not my kind of point here. At the bottom of page 13, he, he climbs up on top of a really tall kind of uh, step chair ladder chair thing basically because he's really short but it reminded me vaguely of a cabinet of dr caligari where the town's clerk is sitting on this really tall uncomfortable chair hunched over his desk and when i looked at that sequence it went, it made me think of caligari both positively negatively positively mm -hmm. like, oh yeah caligari but also negatively of like oh here's caligari this stylized, nightmarish, crazy world, what's going on here? And then I come back to the scene of, oh, <laughs> you know, what could have been? It doesn't yeah. have to be a nightmarish scene, but Caligari is one of those films that it went it went for gold, and it succeeded. Mm -hmm. Colbert needed to go for gold here. So this is... And, un and unfortunately, <laughs> you know, while the muted colors work well mm -hmm. with the tone of the story, mm -hmm. this is... I think this was a good panel to bring up because you could have had a little more depth, a little more shadow, a little more color to just kind of pop out the weirdness of the moment. This is a monochrome book. It, it definitely, the characters can be a little more uh, colorful, but yeah, the backgrounds are pretty monochrome and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There are some pages in here it works, like the nighttime sequences, like if a character stabbed, his red blood really contrasts with the black-blue night. Those are good. Mm -hmm. But yeah, then there's just some sequences of, well, here's a bookshelf, and it's the same color as the wall. You know, everything's just kind of nondescript. Um, but I think that's in kind of in keeping with uh, Hirsch, and um, I would say the other other artists that I really like is, um, I think his name was Edgar P. Jacobs, who did uh, the Blake and Mortimer, Mortimer series in the 1950s. Similar style, because he worked with Hirsch. Um, but, you know, there would have been the effort to kind of define a little difference so that it... Tintin would have had every single one of these books with a colorful spine. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I mean, it's not needed. Uh, oh, the cattail's in there. Oh, by the way, good, good call. I didn't catch because <laughs> that's the next panel I want to bring up. Bonham is sixteen when he gets attacked by the cat. I don't think this scene was supposed to be com comedic, but I was laughing my butt <laughs> off because right, all it is is frame by frame it just alternates between Castine and the repair, you know, whatever. It's kind of going back and forth, back and forth. You see the cat kind of behind him, and then bam, this, this, the the background turns red. The cat's attacking his face, but the look on the cat's face isn't one of, like, terror or... Menacing. Menacing. He, it almost looks like the cat's actually kind of having a good time clawing at his face. Like, I'm going to get you. And and I, I was rolling because, again, his face is all scratched up. Obviously, this cat hates him. The cat, you know, kills him later or anything. But this frame... Even though the cat, like, his teeth are showing and everything, it doesn't look like he's angry if, as much as, Boo, I got you! <laughs> if, 
It's very cartoonish. Yeah. Which seem, seems like it, the tone doesn't quite work. Like, I think of uh, the little four-panel mm -hmm. cartoon, cat cartoons you show me. And I see that panel. I could see that panel in, in a very contemporary setting. Tone-wise, maybe... I, I see what they're trying to do, and I think the tone is a little off for what the scene is calling for. But I'm going to go back to... I love it just because... Again, dreary panel, dreary panel, dreary panel of all these close-ups of people's faces, and then bam, cat attack in one panel, and then afterwards it just goes away. Mm -hmm. It's just so sudden. I I like it. I, I did like that panel for mm -hmm. for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, in story number three, the yellow sign, where the uh, artist is you know painting his model, is is probably my favorite executed of the three stories, and I'll tell you well, why. Four. Of the four stories, yeah. yeah. Um, story three of the four. Um, there is uh, pages um, pages 108 and 109. It's the He asks her to get into a, a costume, and she does. It's this blue attire. Her, her breasts are shown. She's got all these pearls and jewelry on. Very 1920s, very much in keeping with a more modern era. And this is where I think, okay... Well, here's where the illustrator used some imagination exactly. to bring in those elements of the 1920s. And in keeping with the story, but really did a nice job here. It kind of lightened up a little bit. She's very distinctive looking, uh -oh. which is, I, I love Tessie. Yeah. I think she's an interesting character. She, she's drawn the most, because there's not that many women in this story, but the few that are in here... The way that they're drawn, they look all the same. Even the guys, more or less, unless you're the repairer reputations with his big head and cask, they, they all muddle together. And when you don't give a character's name until ten pages later, you lose interest. And th th I think these two pages succeed very much the same way in Under Twin Suns, Carol Geisender's story works, is that she looked at the story, okay, this is the, the Chamber's alternate future, but in real life, the 20s, Roaring 20s is going on, how can I marry the two? And I think that's what pages 108 and 109 are trying to do, that Colbert was actually trying to do that. He doesn't do that anywhere else in the story. Everywhere else in the story is... Everyone has kind of close-ups, so you never see much of the background. You never see much of the architecture of the city. And I know that's probably got to make you mad, Michelle, because that's it's your right. expertise is 1920s modernity in the city. And none of that is established in here. Everything is close-up. The backgrounds are all monocolor. And so, and, and I think part of that is, to, again, to keep it ambiguous enough to make it a true adaptation of the original text. And when you do that, it makes it flat and boring. These two pages are probably one of the few instances in the story where it breaks out from that. You have her in a costume that looks flapperish. Well, and I'm going to uh. say uh, a little more distinctly, mm. she's an exotic-looking costume, mm -hmm. um, which kind of is makes me think of uh, Josephine Baker mm -hmm. from the 20s and the pearls and things like that. In contrast, you have the other female character. Well, I'm thinking in uh, the second, oh. I think the mask, uh, the artist's wife, who's <laughs> very, you know, there's a, there's a romantic and kind of a um, late Victorian gothic feel about her. One of the things that I got from from the book, and I'm going to segue for just a moment, is the idea of the venuettes of each story. 
I will say that about uh, the illustrators that he does an he does an interesting job with creating these vignettes, visual vignettes. So to me, I really got the melodrama from story two um, and the, the love story that happens versus what we have in comparison in story three, which is definitely more modern um, and, and a bit more exotic and, and a little more racy. And what's interesting is that in two, this is supposed to be in Paris where you know the sins of the nightlife are coming to the fold in the 1920s but do you, and you get don't, paris no yeah and that's that's what's sad and like when you were commenting i must be frustrated oh yeah because i'm like here here's another here's another opportunity that could have been really exploited in a very creative way <laughs> and instead what you get kind of going back to the the one scene with the passage of time with mm -hmm. the building across the way that is kind of a gothic, old-style building, but it's very nondescript. That could be in any major city, and that's kind of sad. You know, even if you gave some sort of hint of, like, even the Eiffel Tower in the background. They, they or do kind once. Of a, they the, do once, it's but the it's... final page, right? Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's like a shadow, but... And again, we think that's the Eiffel Tower. There's plenty of tall towers out there. And that could be this the is, Notre Dame, for all we know. This isn't Parisian enough, you know. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, even, like, to establish this first story as a New York City, it shows just the tippy top of the Washington Square Arch. Everything else is is empty filler. There's some clouds, some trees, but that's it. Once you turn that page... You get to some crowd sequences of some buildings, but you lose that this is a New York story. And, I, and after reading, like, Under Twin Suns, that to me seems like a very important aspect to try to capture is the do you nor the New Yorkness of, you know, this uh, new uh, century, and especially this alternate new century. And, and, and I think that's a, a lost opportunity, too, and, and it's... But at the same time, Under Twin Suns, the collection that uh, James Chambers uh, edited, obviously, you know, uh, many of the writers, or at least some of the writers, capitalize on that New Yorkness, which is sad that they didn't do more in The King in Yellow. A little sad. I, I will say, back, back to most of the people look pretty nondescript from each other. Um, but I will say, um, you know, whenever I look at a comic, mm -hmm. as long, at least the characters are consistent. True. So you know who the character is throughout, and, and until they and, tell you the name ten pages in, <laughs> and then I can can stick a name to it, um, to that person. But yeah, I mean, how many comics have we seen where there isn't a consistency of what the character looks like mm -hmm. from one page to the next? So that, uh, you know, Colbert does a, um, a great job with, we know, we can, we can pick uniformity. out the characters. There's uniformity. There's uniformity with the characters. <laughs> um, I also felt like there was definite uniformity with all of the, the lettering, mm -hmm. you know, because he is doing everything. So, um, you know, my big pet peeve is when you can't read and uh, the the dialogue and then it's not balanced in the in the bubble and things like that so it's the little things um he's de he definitely knows his craft i'll say though that in repair reputations aside from the titular repair reputations because he stands out with his big head and can't scratches that the titular care not titular care sorry the uh uh you know the the primary protagonist 
he looks with his hair cut with this swoof. You know, he stands out because none of the other characters have this swoof. He looks like a 1960s Italian giallo Oh, you killer. know what I was thinking of? Is um, Peter Fonda from Easy Rider. Peter Fonda from Easy Rider? Mm-hmm. I'll mm-hmm. take it. I just, I see the mutton chops. I see the suit. I'm like, he he's probably in blood and black lace and he's going to stab you. And of course he tried to do some stabby action. I there. kept thinking Peter Fonda through that yeah. whole story. I was like, oh, yep, here's Peter Fonda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would say that at the end of the day, kind of to wrap up some of the stuff here is it's a competent comic. And I, I and it's a competent comic. It's serviceable. The, the art is fine. It's just, it doesn't go, it doesn't try to capture the magic. I think if it captured a little bit more of that king and yellow magic, this would escalate it. It's comparing that to Gao Tanabe's um, Mountains of Madness, which is which is another faithful adaptation. But Tanabe brings a bizarreness and a cosmic otherworld quality that really complements Lovecraft's text there. Um I so I would say that the detailing mm-hmm. of his mangas. Now, when I originally read um, at the Mountains of Madness, I had an electronic copy, so I was able to really like, kind of like, zoom into the detail, and you get over, you're overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the detail. There's that awe and and aspiring that you know, if we look to Nick Mamatos, that is an awe inspiring type of manga and an adaptation of uh, At the Mountains of Madness. I, I think for King in Yellow, I don't think the text is necessarily supposed to be awe-inspiring per se, at least to the reader. However, to the readers in the story reading King in Yellow, that's awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the piece that you need to catch, is to translate that, what's the awe that the characters are feeling in the text? Put that on the page. And I think that's the missing piece here. There are a couple I, I, sequences mm-hmm. that kind of get a little close, but again, because he's going so literal with the on-screen action, it's just outside arm's reach. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think uh, that if the illustrator had just kind of like gone outside the box just a little bit more, um, you could have had a much better adaptation of The King in Yellow. Pull in what what you're familiar with, what you know about the text, but then break out of that box a little bit and, and bring a bit more. Don't be quite so subtle. Don't quite be so safe. And safe, yeah. I, these are all texts that beg not to be taken safe. I mean, if if, if you were going to take Reanimator safe, you would not have, you know, the 1980s Herbert West Reanimator film with a severed head gurgling around trying to go down on a lady. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I think that's a wonderful time to conclude our dialogue of this graphic novel adaptation of The King in Yellow. <laughs> And I also think we might just need a a little musical break after that one. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, some thank yous and upcoming events. And welcome back. This episode's bumper is courteous of Ian Welke. Ian is the author of Four Corners, The Whisper and the Dissonance, 
the Rat Pack in the Walls, and End Times at Ridgemont High, which could be best summarized as Fast Times at Ridgemont High, meets Shadow over Innsmouth, meets The King in Yellow. We've had the honor to interview Ian on our Scholars from the Edge of Time program back in April 2020 and discuss his book on this podcast on episode 27. We wish Ian continued success with his many books and stories. We'd also like to thank the Burial Plot podcast co-hosts Brenda Tolian and Joy Yaley for interviewing us recently about our interest in and engagement with horror studies in the genre at large. It was a fun discussion. We hope that you'll take a listen and support that podcast. It's also chock full of behind the scenes of this podcast of how we work, so check that out for sure. Also, a huge congratulations to a previous guest, Lee Murray, for her recently uh, obtained Shirley Jackson Award for co-editing with uh, Geneve Flynn, The Black Black Crane's Tales of Unquiet Women, published by Omnium Gatherum. So check our show notes for links to our previous interviews and reviews of Ian and Lee, as well as the burial plot interview. And in upcoming events, on HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we'll conclude our focus on The King in Yellow by interviewing James Chambers, Carol Geisander, and Megan Arcuri from Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign. In addition to the interviews, each guest will delight the listener with a brief reading. This episode will post on Tuesday, August 31st. And stay tuned for our upcoming programming for HP Lovecast, uh, which will focus on witches, 80s retro horror, and space horror, just to name a few. If there's a theme you would like us to focus on, do let us know. And coming up on our Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast, where we focus on sword and planet genre, we'll be discussing the 1980 film The Ice Pirates. This episode will broadcast live on Thursday, August 26th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and will be available to stream afterwards on Blog Talk Radio. So if you want to reach out to us, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, which will be getting an overhaul very soon. And of course, please email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do consider supporting us. You can purchase our books. We each have an Amazon author page with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to. If you feel like donating a dollar or two, we also have a coffee account, and that link is in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening.